Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. I just ask for a special blessing as we study from your word that we would understand the things that you would have us to understand. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, when you think of the great controversy, sometimes you tend to think of something that's going on between Christ and Satan. But sometimes we don't think about the fact that we are the ones that are at the very middle of that conflict. That our lives, the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis are a reflection of this ongoing struggle between good and evil. And I'm going to start off by giving you an outline of where we are headed. So we are going to do a four-part series on the role of Michael and the Great Controversy. Michael is found in four chapters in Scripture. Revelation chapter 12, the book of Jude, Daniel chapter 10, and Daniel chapter 12. Now I think you know who Michael is, right? And you can prove that from the Bible. It's pretty simple. Revelation 12, Michael fights against Satan. The book of Jude, Michael is described as the archangel. Then in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that the voice of the archangel will cause the dead in Christ to rise first. And it's in the book of John chapter 5 that Christ says that the Father has given to him the power to resurrect the dead. So clearly Michael is the archangel and he is Christ. So that helps us to understand who Michael is. Now the question is, why is Christ described as Michael in these four chapters because there's many different names for Christ, right? So apparently in scripture when Michael, the name Michael is used for Christ, it is conveying a specific idea about who Christ is and what he is doing in the particular context that he has mentioned. Well, what does the name Michael mean? That's right. Michael means who is like God, which means he is God. And with that name, he is identifying himself as being a divine power, and he is coming up in each of the four chapters that we are going to see, he is in conflict, in warfare with Satan. So whenever you see Michael, that means that there is some kind of great controversy struggle going on. And what we're going to see, and as you look at these four chapters, it's very fascinating how this great controversy plays out between Christ and Satan, between Michael and Satan. And I'm going to read to you a statement from Ellen White as we get started here describing this great controversy because you know we talk about how Jesus came to this earth and he died for our sins and he's made a way of salvation for all who will choose to follow after him and that is very important there's more to the issue than that though believe it or not this is patriarchs and prophets page 69 the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man Do you realize that we talk about salvation and as important as that is, that wasn't the only reason that Jesus came to this earth? 
It says, it was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded. But notice this. But it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. So you realize that when Christ came here to this world, he came here not only to save man, and that was a, a huge part of why he came, but he also came to vindicate the character of God before the universe. What does that mean, to vindicate? If you vindicate somebody. That's right. It means to, to clear their name. It means to prove that they were right all along. Someone has made a charge against them saying so-and-so did this and we're going to prove that they were wrong. And you come to court and you're not only found not guilty, you are found that you never did anything wrong. Your character or your name is vindicated. And so when Jesus came to this world, he came to vindicate the character of God. And I understand Pastor Skeet, when he talked last night, he said that the whole controversy started over the law of God. And the law of God is a transcript of the character of God, right? And we can prove that from the Bible. Romans 7 says that the law is holy, just, and good. Those are the characteristics of God. God is holy, God is just, God is good. And so, anyway, that's Patriarchs and Prophets, page 69, that Christ came not just to save man, but to vindicate the character of God before the universe. Um, okay. Now, Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, and this is going to be our first study here. Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to start off in verse 7, and then we're going to come back and look at the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7, and it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven, and the great dragon was cast out. The old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we see, here's the two key players in the great controversy. It starts off as war where? In heaven. Michael is fighting against the dragon. And clearly the dragon is defined as being the old serpent, the devil, and Satan. Now, why is the dragon described as the old serpent? He's been around a long time. He shows up in Genesis chapter 3. And he causes Eve to fall into sin. That's part of the great controversy right there. So clearly we see that the dragon is Satan and then Michael we've proven is Christ. So this is the, the controversy between Christ and Satan. And notice here in the very first, and, and as far as a timeline, the reason why I'm doing Revelation 12 first is because that's the first place in the timeline. Then we're going to go to Jude 12. That's going to be the second place in the timeline. Then Daniel 10 is the third place in the timeline. And then Daniel 12 is the conclusion of the battle between Christ and Satan. But... This battle goes all the way back to heaven. And what this first passage teaches us is that from the very beginning in heaven, Michael defeats Satan. Michael defeats Satan. And specifically, 
you will see when you get to verse 10 that Satan is described as the accuser of our brethren. And we're going to get into that. But notice, the, the, when, when someone's the accuser of the brethren, they go around and they say things. And Satan is the one who started this. Satan was saying things against God that was not true. He gained sympathizers, but he's eventually cast out. He could not win that war in heaven. Okay. Now, where does, after Satan gets cast out, where does the war come to? It comes to this earth. And what is Satan going to do here on this earth? He's going to do the same thing. He is going to be the accuser of the brethren. And we're going to see, and I'm going to give you some verses to look at, we're going to see how Satan continues his work as the accuser of our brethren. But what we want to see is, what vehicle does Christ work through here on this earth, and how does Satan work here on this earth to continue this controversy? Because the controversy starts in heaven, but now it's continuing here on this earth. How does that controversy continue? Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, and let's go back to verse 1. It says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Okay, so we have this woman, and I'm not going to draw, so I'm just going to write words. And you have the sun on her head, the moon under her feet. She's clothed with the sun, the moon is under her feet, and she has a crown that has 12 stars. Okay, now you have to know when you're looking at Revelation chapter 12, after you look at verses 7 through 9, that Revelation chapter 12 is describing the great controversy, right? So what does this woman have to do with the great controversy? Who is this woman? It's the church. How do we know that the woman is the church? Because when you, by the time you, you get to verse 6, you see that the woman fled into the wilderness and she was there for 1,260 days, which is the 1,260 years. This is describing God's people who were under persecution. So clearly this woman represents the church. And then you see a different woman, a corrupt woman in Revelation chapter 17. Um, she's described as the mother of harlots. So here's the pure church in Revelation chapter 12. And what are her characteristics? She is clothed with what? The sun. The moon's under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars. What's this sun that she's clothed with? That's right. And what verse would you take, give to prove that? That being clothed with the sun means that she's clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Go to Malachi chapter 4. Verse 2, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the verse before talks about the coming of the Lord, the wicked shall burn. But in verse 2 it says, but unto you that fear my name, there's the first angel's message, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. All right, so she's clothed with the sun. This is the son of righteousness. And notice it's S-U-N. 
son of righteousness. So what does that tell us? So Jesus is the son of righteousness. If the woman is clothed with the son, what does that tell us about the church? It's not, and by the way, these aren't designed to be hard questions. That's right. The church is to shine like the sun, setting forth the rays of light the way Jesus did. That's the purpose of the church. The church is here on this earth not to just be a club where we come to, oh yeah, we're members of the Seventh-day Adventist Club or whatever. No, we are members of a body that Christ has raised up to set off the light like the sun, the way Jesus gave off the light of the sun, specifically his righteousness. That when we have his righteousness, we shine like the sun. Now, now the next question is, it says the church also has the moon under her feet. Now, what do you think the moon represents? Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So the moon, she, it's under her feet, so it's as if it's a foundation for the church. That's right. The moon is a lesser light to the sun. It reflects the light that the sun gives off. Christ is the light, and then you have the moon that reflects that light. And I heard someone say, yeah, when Ellen White referred to her work, she referred to herself as the lesser light leading to the greater light. And what you can always say about God's church, God's church has always been designed to have the sun of righteousness shining forth from it. And in its midst, it would have prophets who would be lesser lights pointing you back to the greater light. So you have Christ, the sun of righteousness. You have the moon, the lesser light, leading back to the greater light. And then you have the crown of 12 stars. What does the crown of 12 stars represent? Simply put, these are the 12 apostles. This is the apostolic authority that came with the church. So you have sort of this order of leadership. When you look at, and what what's happening here is you have the sun, you have the moon, you have the stars. The sun is the greatest light, the moon is the next light, it's lesser than the sun, and the stars are even less than that. So the sun is the greatest light. And then the lesser light, the moon, reflects back to the light of the sun. And then you have the stars. That's the apostolic leadership, those who are faithful to God. They're even lesser lights yet, but they all have their place of authority. Christ, the prophets, and the leaders of the church. And as long as the leaders of the church are faithful to the word of God, they have their role in the organization that God has raised up. Now... It's interesting, you start off Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, and you see that this woman has the son of righteousness. Now, if you have the son of righteousness, righteousness, um, the Bible says all thy commandments are righteousness. So if you have the righteousness of Christ, and if all of God's commandments are righteousness, wouldn't it make sense that God's church would be a commandment-keeping church? Well, isn't it interesting that when you come to Revelation chapter 12, 17, it says the dragon was wroth with who? 
the woman, it's the same woman in verse 1, who what? Which keep the commandments of God, that means they have the son of righteousness, and have the testimony of Jesus, which is what? The spirit of prophecy, which has the lesser light. So notice, you start in verse 1, you have the woman. She's clothed with the son, which is the son of righteousness. She has the lesser light, which is the voice of the prophets, pointing back to the greater light. And the dragon is wroth with that woman. So here's what we learn, starting in, ver in the very first verse. The vehicle of controversy shifts from heaven to earth, and Satan now directs his warfare against God's people. Remember that. When we live our lives on a daily basis, when we take our stand for Christ, we are being targeted by Satan. But you know what? If you look at what happened in heaven, who won? Michael prevailed. So we need to stop looking so much at the power of Satan and reminding ourselves of the power of Christ. Christ prevailed against Satan in heaven, and he's going to prevail here on this earth. He's raised up the church to be the vehicle to gain that victory. Yeah, yeah we're gonna, good question. And we're gonna, that's what this whole four-part series is all about. So, so keep, keep coming. All right, so... All right, so God has raised this church up to be the vehicle that he is going to use to defeat Satan. And specifically, how is he going to defeat Satan? With the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the sun is going to shine forth his righteousness, his character, and he will have the moon, which will be the light that reflects us or points us back to him, to the word of God, and that will keep us from going off track. And he will have spiritual, faithful leaders who will keep us headed in the right direction. We're going to get into the issue of leadership, especially when we get into the book of Jude in our next hour. Okay. So Satan is going to go after the righteousness of Christ. He's going to go after the prophets. He's going to go after the leadership. Does that make sense? And you can see it in God's church today. The message of the righteousness of Christ has been twisted. It's been distorted. It's under attack. People are saying, oh, you can just be covered with the righteousness of Christ and keep on sinning and doing whatever you want. Yet when you come to Zechariah chapter 3, you see that when... Joshua was, cl was clothed with a new garment. What did they do first? They took off the filthy garments. Yet Satan is trying to get the church to believe you can get the righteousness of Christ to cover you while you still have your filthy garments on. So that's one of the ways that Satan is attacking us. And I don't have to tell you how s Satan is attacking the prophets in the church. Just see what people say about Ellen White and the Seventh-day Adventist church. You've grown up in the church. We call it sophisticated unbelief. It's like, I'll choose to believe what I want to believe, but the rest of it you have to read in context. That's not what she really means. She wrote that over 100 years ago. We had, that, that was over 100 years ago. That was so long ago. So that doesn't really mean what it means today. And then not only that, God's faithful leaders are under attack by Satan as well. I mean, you should get on some of the Internet sites and see what people say about some of our godly church leaders today. So anyway... Just to summarize again, the church, the woman, she has the sun, 
the moon and the stars. The sun is the sun of righteousness. This is the light of Christ and his righteousness. Christ is the light and the leader of this church, and those who receive his righteousness are a demonstration of his character. But not only does the woman have Christ and the sun of righteousness, she has the moon under her feet, which is the lesser light leading back to the greater light. Not only that, she has the apostolic authority, the 12 stars, the apostles. So you have this order of authority, the sun, the moon, and the stars, Christ, the prophets, the leaders of the church. And that is what Satan is especially going after. Okay. Now, let's keep, we're going to just keep going through. I mean, most of you have probably studied Revelation chapter 12, so I'm going to kind of try to bring out some things that you may not have thought of before. Of course, verse 2 is pretty straightforward. She being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And so this is speaking of how she was going to bring forth Christ in, onto the, to this earth. And then verse 3, we see there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And notice verse 4, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So notice. Where, and when it says, you know, Satan was cast to the earth and he drew, drew the third part of the stars of heaven, that's the angels that fell with Lucifer, Satan. Where were they cast to? The earth. the earth. And what is the very, or what does it say Satan did when he came to this, to this world? It says he stood before the woman. That means he's standing before the woman to have a conflict to have a battle, to have a fight, because he sees that this woman is going to bring forth the deliverer that will deliver the saints here on this earth. But notice, the quote that I read from Patriarchs and Prophets, it wasn't just for the salvation of man that Christ came to this earth, it was to vindicate the character of God. So Satan sees that not only are those that he has caused to fall into sin going to receive salvation, but God is going to vindicate his character before the universe by coming to this world, by using the vehicle of the church to demonstrate his character, not only to this world, but to the onlooking universe. And so Satan stands in front of the woman as soon as he sees that Christ is going to come and he wants to devour her child as soon as it was born. Continuing in verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This is clearly speaking of Christ. Now notice this, it says, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So it just makes it sound like, okay, Christ was born and he went straight to heaven. But there's a lot more to it. Do you know of another place in the book of Revelation that talks about Christ going to the throne of God. There, there's other places. That I have one, one specifically in mind. Here it just is like, okay, he was born, but then he was caught up into God, into God's throne. Well, how did he get there? That's the question. How did Christ get back to the throne of God? I, I would invite you to go now to Revelation chapter 3. And by, by now, when you're in chapter 12, the writer of Revelation, or God who inspired the book of Revelation, is going to want you to think back to this verse. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where Christ says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me where? In my throne, 
even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Now, so how did Christ get back to the throne? Because when you read Revelation 12, it's just like, okay, he was born and then he was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, how did he get there? What does Revelation 3.21 tell us? He overcame. Now, what is Revelation 3.21? Who is that message to? The church of Laodicea. Laodicea means a judged people. That's the message of Christ. That's really the last thing that he says after, and then he says to him that heareth what the Spirit says to the churches, you know, but he says that to all the churches. But the last specific thing that he gives to Laodicea, he says, to him who overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and I'm set down with my Father in his throne. Revelation chapter 12 says, okay, Satan is standing in front of the woman to try to devour Christ, the child, as soon as he was born. But Christ is born. He lives his life for 33 and a half years. He overcomes. And then he ascends back to heaven. And he's caught up to God into his throne. Now what does Christ say to his last day church? If you overcome the way I overcame, you will sit with me in my throne. What does that tell us? What was Christ going up against for him to overcome? Was he just going through a few little temptations like, oh, you know, should I eat this cookie or should I not? Should I, you know? Listen, Christ, he was going against all the satanic forces that Satan and all of his evil angels could muster against Christ day by day for 33 and a half years. Now, yes, there was a season where Satan pulled away from him after Christ came through the temptations in the wilderness. But you have to realize that from the moment Christ was born, Revelation says... Satan was trying to devour Christ as soon as he was born. And that continued for 33 and a half years. And Christ is saying, I overcame and I was caught up to God and to the throne. If you overcome as I overcame, the same will be given to you. And humanly speaking, sometimes you think, oh man, Christ was God. And, I mean, you know, he had an advantage. And yeah, you know, I mean, he... He overcame, but I'm going to have to overcome like that? That just sounds, that's out of, that, that's impossible. From a human standpoint, you may think that, but re realize this. When Jesus came to this earth, he had no advantages. He came, if you study, for example, the book of Hebrews, it says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, this is Hebrews 2.14, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And then, there, Hebrews 4, 15, and 16, it says that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with what? The same mind. You know, some people say that Christ was just tempted in his physical flesh, but that his mind was not tempted the way we are tempted. But yet, 1 Peter 4, verse 1 says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. That means that Christ suffered in the mind. He was tempted here. And so Christ has given us an example that we should follow in his steps. And he's saying, if you overcome the way I overcame, not only was I caught up to God into his throne, you will be caught up to God into his throne. And you realize that is part of the great controversy. 
Because Christ is saying, I overcame. You can too. And yet humans say, I can't overcome. Have you heard people say that? I can't overcome sin. Where did they get that from? They got that from Satan. Listen, when we talk about this great controversy warfare, this isn't a, a battle, and you know this, this isn't a battle of guns and swords and whatever. This is a war of words. It always has been. It was a war of words in heaven. Satan said that God's law could not be kept, and guess what? He says the same thing here on this earth. Christ is saying, you can overcome as I overcame. Satan is saying, no, you can't. And so that means we as God's church are at the very center of this great controversy between Christ and Satan. Okay. Does that make sense so far? All right. Continuing on in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. We know this. This is the 1260 years, which... You know the dates for the 1260, right? What are the dates? Right, 538-1798. I'm not going to take the time to go through all the history now, but you should know the history. If someone asks you, well, what happened in 538? You need to know that, because otherwise we're just making up stuff that picking dates out of thin air. And I think most Adventists know, oh yeah, 1798, Napoleon's general birth, he took Pope Pius VI captive. But sometimes people get a little bit fuzzy about what happened in 538 because the decree to make the Roman emperor or the, the bishop of Rome to have power over the state, that was in 533. But it was only in 538 when Tertullian drove the, um, the barbaric tribes out of Rome that the decree took effect. So anyway, just know those things. All right. So that was the 1260 years. So for 1260 years, the church is in the wilderness. Now someone asked the question, didn't, wasn't the battle won at the cross? It was. But we're going to see in what way it was won. But if everything was finished at the cross, if, as, some, as many in the Christian world say, if everything was decided, determined, finished, completed, you name it, whatever, fully and completely, why did the church flee to the wilderness for 1,260 years? That's a long time. I mean, that's way longer than any of us can really comprehend, humanly speaking. And according to Scripture, it's three and a half prophetic years. What happened in the 1260 years? We're going to study this a little bit more when we look at Daniel 11 this afternoon. But here you had the power on earth, and it's described again in Revelation 13. The dragon gives us power, seat, and authority to this beast who reigns for 1260 years or 42 months. And so you have a union of church and state where a church power reigns over the state and they persecute the saints. What does that tell us? So, so th this is papal Rome. Where did they get their power, seat, and authority from? The dragon. Okay. The dragon is who? Satan. Okay, so you have this woman, the church, the pure church, and then you have a beast in Revelation 13 who is also, also a woman in Revelation 17, a woman who rides the beast, 
And since the woman rides the beast, that means the church controls the state. The church tells the state where to go. Okay, so Christ is working through his church. Satan is working through his church. And in these 1260 years, Satan uses his church, which is a corrupt church, to persecute the pure church. We're going to talk about this in Daniel 11, but Ellen White says that the same thing is going to happen. History is going to repeat itself. Scene similar. Okay. Why did God allow Satan to persecute his saints for 1,260 years? Have you ever wondered that? It's like, okay, Christ prevailed on the cross. He died. He's vindicated his character before the universe. Why then now does he allow Satan to rule for that long? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, let's just do a few comparisons. How long was Christ's ministry here on this earth? Three and a half literal years. That is 1,260 literal days. That's Christ. So how long does Satan rule through the papacy? Three and a half prophetic years. So Christ, it's literal. Satan, he has three and a half prophetic years, okay? Now it's interesting, at the end of those three and a half years, what happens to Christ? He's crucified. What happens at the end of the three and a half prophetic years? The beast gets a deadly wound. What happens to Christ after he's crucified? He's resurrected. What happens to the beast? Revelation 17 says he's going to have a resurrection. So Satan is an imposter. He is basically copying what Christ did on earth, but in a perverted way. Christ came and blessed the people. He brought healing. He brought love. He brought salvation. He demonstrated the character of God. So Christ had three and a half literal years of ministry, in addition to the 30 years of the people in Nazareth who got to see him. But the three and a half years that we read about primarily in Scripture, that's what we're talking about. Christ had those three and a half years to demonstrate the character of God to the universe. Satan has three and a half prophetic years to demonstrate his character to the universe. Now the question is, what happened at the end of the 1260 years? There was the deadly wound. Right before the deadly wound, another fulfillment of prophecy took place just a few years before 1798. Do you know what that was? the French Revolution. And in fact, Revelation chapter 11, just the chapter before, it starts off by talking about the 1260 years. It talks about rising to, to measure the temple of God, but leave the court without. It's been given to the Gentiles to tr tr trample the city underfoot. And then you come down in Revelation 11, you see that you have the two witnesses that are clothed in sackcloth for 1260 years. And at the end of that 1260 years, you see a beast comes up from the bottomless pit, and for three and a half days, which is three and a half literal years, they would make war against Scripture. And this power was called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. And, you know, you can read this in the Great Controversy, but Sodom for its licentiousness, Egypt for atheism, and that described France. Okay. So at the end 
of the 1260 years, you have the French Revolution. Okay, now let me ask you this. What does the French Revolution have to do with the papacy and the dragon giving his power, seat, and authority to the beast? What does that have to do? Okay, that's not the French Revolution. The, Fr the French Revolution is when they burned the Bibles in the streets, they worshiped the goddess of reason, they said we're atheists, we are no longer going to follow God, we are done with God forever, this is it, we're sick of God. That's what the French Revolution ended up being. Remember, Christ has three and a half literal years to demonstrate his character. His character is fully and completely demonstrated when he is crucified on the cross. Ellen White says, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. At the end of the three and a half prophetic years, Satan's character, his government is fully demonstrated by what happens in the French Revolution. Now, how is that? Here's what happens. It's in France in 508, which this is the beginning of the 1290, your prophecy of Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. In France, Clovis, the king of the Franks, he first unites church and state, and he says, I'll use my army to assist the papacy. And in France, you'll see, and Ellen White talks about this in the book, Great Controversy, in France, the principles of the papacy were supported in France above all other nations in Europe. When the Protestant Reformation came along, when the light started to shine forth in Europe, France suppressed it. You had the St. Bartholomew's Massacre. The Huguenots were driven out. The, the Albigenses were driven out. France would not harbor the Protestant Reformation. They would support the papacy. So guess what happens? The people in France, they see their view of God is skewed based on how the papacy portrays God to them. They won't take the light from the Protestant Reformation, and so they say, our view of God is the way the papacy portrays God. Here's our view of God. We can pay off sin with indulgences. If we mess up, we're going to burn in hell forever through the ceaseless ages of eternity. We'll get zapped every time we mess up. And if we go against the church, they're going to condemn us. They're going to excommunicate us. They're going to burn us at the stake. God is a tyrant. God is horrible. God is mean. We want nothing to do with him. When in reality, what the papacy was doing, they were simply portraying the character of Satan. So at the end of the 1260 years, complete anarchy breaks out in France, and France says, if this is who God is, we want nothing to do with him. We are just going to get rid of God, and we are going to rule for ourselves. And what happens? Complete anarchy. God is totally cut out. The Bibles are burned. People are cut or, you know, killed at the guillotine and so forth. And what happened in the French Revolution is a demonstration of what happens or what would happen if Satan was allowed to be in charge. The French Revolution was a small picture of what would have happened to the universe if Satan had prevailed against Michael in heaven. You see that? So Christ has three and a half literal years to demonstrate his character to the universe. And with his victory on the cross, he demonstrates that his way is the best way. Now Satan says, okay, it's my turn. 
he gets three and a half prophetic years. And, and then God can look on at the end of the three and a half prophetic years, the French Revolution takes place and then the deadly wound happens. And God can look to the unlooking universe and he can say, do you really have any questions about which way is better? Can you see what happens when my law is done away with? Complete anarchy takes place. So that's what the, the French Revolution was all about. Okay. So that takes us through the 1260 years, and that's why God allowed Satan to rule for 1260 years, because it took that long for the character of Satan to be fully developed. Now, after 1798, the time of the end, there is the final conflict, the final struggle. Christ demonstrates his character to the universe on the cross. Satan demonstrates his character to the universe through the papacy culminating in the French Revolution. And now after 1798, after the time of the end, Christ says, okay, now it's my turn. I'm going to raise up a people for the last days who will still be a demonstration of the woman that's described in verse 1. In verse 1, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, the crown of 12 stars, and Satan is saying, okay, you're going to do that but I'm going to get my resurrection as well and we're going to have one last struggle between the church and the powers of Satan. The two churches are going to clash one final time. Okay, so let's keep going. Picking it up in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the, dra the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Okay. So here we see that for it gives us a foreshadowing of what happens in the future based on what happened in the past. Michael defeats Satan in heaven. Now let's pick it up in verse 10. And this is where things get very interesting. And in the last 15 to 20 minutes of our first presentation here, this is where we are really going to drill down, so to speak, into the key issues that are at stake here at the very end. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, verse 10, you can apply this, and most of the time we apply this to the cross, and that's, that's a, probably the best application, but there's actually three places this can apply to you. In Desire of Ages, page 490, Ellen White says, Jesus answered, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And that's quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 18. The scenes of the past and the future were presented to the mind of Jesus. He beheld Lucifer as he was first cast out from the heavenly places. So Lucifer's cast out before there was sin on earth. He beheld Lucifer as he was first cast out from the heavenly places. He looked forward to the scenes of his own agony when before all the worlds the character of the deceiver should be unveiled. He heard the cry, it is finished, announcing that the redemption of the lost race was forever made certain, that heaven was made eternally secure against the accusations, the deceptions, the pretensions that Satan would instigate. So now, not only is it the fall of Satan from before earth, but it's also the fall at the cross. But notice she continues on, beyond the cross of Calvary, with its agony and shame, Jesus looked forward to the great final day when the prince of the power of the air will meet his destruction and the earth so long marred by his rebellion. Jesus beheld the work of evil forever ended and the peace of God filling heaven and earth. So there's really three parts to... Um, 
the accuser of our brethren being cast down. He was cast down when he prevailed not against Michael, when the controversy first started in heaven. Then at the cross, up until the cross, he could go to, to the gates of heaven, so to speak, and, and make his accusations, and, and some might still listen, some might still have questions. Ellen White tells us that Satan lost all sympathy with any questioning minds that might, they had decided to stand with Christ, but all of their questions were answered. Yet for the angels, the unfallen beings, their questions were answered at the cross. But you know what? there's still people here on this earth that are wondering what all the issues are. And so there's still a final conflict that's taking place here. So that's what we are involved in. So let's continue here. Verse 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. This is describing people through the ages who overcome the dragon. Now notice, Jesus was caught up to the throne of God. And what do we see? How did he get there? By overcoming. And what Revelation 12 says, there will be a group of people who overcome. How do they overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the blood of the Lamb, that represents the forgiving grace that Jesus gives to us. But you know, the blood of Christ also sanctifies us. Hebrews 13 makes that very clear. Sometimes people just want justification. They don't want sanctification, but it's a complete package. So we have justification, we have forgiveness, but we also receive sanctification. And we have the word of our testimony. We have a living experience with Jesus. And we are following him so closely that the temporary life on this earth doesn't matter so much to us as does the vindication of God's name before the universe. We want our lives here on this earth to rightly represent the character of God to the universe. That's what it means to overcome. Now, verse 12 gets very interesting. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So the devil has come to this earth, and he knows that he has a short time, and he especially knows that he has a short time after the deadly wound, after 1798. So when he comes down to the earth, especially after 1798, and yes, he always has known he has had a short time since he's been here on this earth, since he got Adam and Eve to sin, and then when he saw Jesus die on the cross, he's always known that he's had a short time. But especially since 1798 and 1844, and when God raises up his last day church, he knows that he has but a short time. Now, why does it say, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea? Why? Because... The same Satan that was the accuser of the brethren in heaven is coming down to this earth to be the accuser of the brethren here. Now, how does he work as the accuser of the brethren here on this earth? Let me show you. Michael fights against this accuser of the, of the brethren. And we're going to you know, unpack the book of Jude in our next hour. But let me show you. In Jude... Verse 9, it says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed against the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. What's the issue in the book of Jude? In verse 9, why are Michael and Satan contending with each other? They're contending over the body of Moses, and why? 
Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is saying, Moses sinned. I have the power over the grave. Christ, you don't have the power to raise him up. He sinned. He belongs to me. He is my property. You cannot raise him up. But because Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he knows that through faith with his sacrifice, Moses has the right to be resurrected. So Christ simply contends with the word of God and says, the Lord rebuked thee. So one of the issues in the great controversy as the accuser of the brethren is, does Christ have the power of the resurrection? And the book of Jude clearly shows Christ has the power of the resurrection. And by the way, the book of Jude is way more than just about that one issue. So we're going to get into that. So that issue, the, power, the issue of resurrection of the righteous saints, those who have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but who have by faith accepted the merits of Jesus, the, the accuser of the brethren says, Moses sinned, you can't raise him up. Christ says, the Lord rebuke thee. Christ wins. Michael wins. Now notice this. Let's come now to Zechariah chapter 3. And this is where you're clearly going to see the accuser of the brethren's spirit of Satan. Zechariah 3, verse, starting in verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So here you have Satan resisting. He's accusing. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was, was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel, and then they take away the filthy garments. His iniquity passes away. So here's what's happening. What is happening here? Christ wants to clothe Joshua with his righteousness. Now, and as I said before, he takes away his filthy garments. He cleans his life up. He doesn't leave him in a life of sin. That's what the Christian world wants us to believe. You can keep the filthy garments and just cover it up with a robe of righteousness. No, no, no. The filthy garments are taken away. But it's not just that. Satan is saying, you can't give him your righteousness, Christ. That's not fair. They sinned. Norman sinned. Any one of you sinned. You've sinned. You God, you can't give them your righteousness. That's not allowed. They have sinned. And God is saying, the Lord rebuke thee. Yeah. I just want to know if this is a little I think this is, yeah, this is something that happens between Christ and Satan. And by faith, we're asking for forgiveness. But, you know, this isn't something that someone literally saw, so to speak where everyone could see it. But this is a behind-the-scenes great controversy battle where Satan is saying, God, you cannot forgive sin. You can't. That's not fair. They've sinned. And here's the issue. Satan is saying, God, you cast me out of heaven because I sinned. These people have sinned. How can you let them in? You see the argument? But here's the difference. Satan was a perfect being in a perfect environment who knew perfectly the character of God, and he rebelled against it. We have been born into a world of sin where we can only take by faith what Scripture tells us. So it's a different playing field. So here's the issue. So, and what does Christ say? Again, as he said in the book of Jude here in Zechariah, says, the Lord rebuke thee. So you have forgiveness of sin. That's taken care of because of the cross. But notice this, and this is where we're going to wrap things up here in our last roughly 10 minutes. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, knowing 
having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now he has great wrath. This wrath is directed against this woman in verse 17, which keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's one last issue that the accuser of the brethren works against. So he has worked against Satan. Uh, Satan has worked against Christ about the issue of the ability to resurrect the dead. He has accused Christ. He has accused the brethren. He's worked against Christ to say, you cannot forgive sin. But there's one last issue that he says, aha, I can win this battle still. Christ, you say you're going to have a woman who keeps the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, but as the accuser of the brethren, Satan comes down, he has short time, and he is saying, I am going to prevent God's church, his woman, from keeping the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus Christ because Satan says, I still have the power of temptation. I know what human beings are like, and if, since I still have the power of temptation, Christ hasn't taken that away from me yet, I'm going to use it to my fullest, and I'm going to go after whoever I can, and I'm going to prove to Christ yet that he cannot have a woman who keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ, you're saying they're going to overcome as you overcame, but Christ, I'm going to bet you everything, the whole battle, the whole great controversy is on the line, but Satan is saying, I bet you, with my great wrath, with my temptations, I'm going to win this battle. You see what's happening? He's the accuser of the brethren. And he is saying, okay, God, you resurrected Moses. You're forgiving people's sins. But I am going to tell you that I am going to keep the church from keeping the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus. And so he works through persecution. You see that in verses 13 through 15 and 16. You see which again talks about the 1260 years, but verse 17 is where things really wrap up, and this is where we are going to spend the last few moments. Verse 17, the dragon was wroth or enraged with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the war begins in heaven, and it's going to end here on this earth, and Satan is now going to go after the woman, and this woman keeps the commandments of God. That's the righteousness of Christ. All thy commandments are righteousness. This woman is shedding forth or shining forth with the sun of the righteousness of Christ. And she also has the testimony of Jesus, which Revelation 19.10 tells us is the spirit of prophecy. Now, some people say, oh, the testimony of Jesus is just the testimony about Jesus' work in your life. But Revelation chapter 22 makes it very clear. Well, let me show this to you. This is important enough. Revelation 19.10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now go to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 9. Then saith he unto me, or verse 8, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Verse 9. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. That sounds like Revelation 19.10, right? For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets. So the correlation is the testimony of Jesus and the prophets. And so Satan is going after God's church, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And so in this final struggle, he's making war with the remnant. You know, there's some people that don't even like to say that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the remnant. 
Look, if you don't want to be identified with the remnant, you are not going to be among the remnant. Because the remnant is God's last day church, which keeps the commandments of God, has the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. There is no other church in the world that keeps the commandments of God and has the gift of prophecy in its midst in the last days. If you don't want to be part of the remnant, you're not going to be part of the remnant. Satan is deceiving you. He's making war against you. And so the issue at stake in the great controversy, and we are going to develop this in our next three talks, the issue at stake in the great controversy is that Satan is making war against God's church. And he is making war against God's church because they keep the commandments, which is a demonstration of his character. And because God's church at the end of time, will keep the commandments of God, which is the son of righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. This is a demonstration to the world that God's law can be kept. And it undermines Satan's entire argument in the great controversy. So he goes against this church and he says, you don't need to really keep the, the law of God. As long as you have a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't m matter if you keep on sinning, so on and so forth. And yet, He's going against the clear teachings of Scripture, and Satan knows that. Now, here's the thing. Why does he go against the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy? Listen, if you read the spirit of prophecy, there is no question about what the truth of Scripture is once you finish reading that. Let me just give you an example. Third Selective Messages, page 360. He who has not sufficient faith to believe that Christ can keep him from sinning has not the faith to give him an entrance into the kingdom of God. In Heavenly Places, page 146, everyone who, by faith who obeys the commandments of God will reach the condition of sinlessness in which Adam lived before his transgression. Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Those statements are too clear to be misunderstood, right? So either you have to believe her or you don't. And it's simply the lesser light, the moon, pointing back to the greater light. And the Bible makes it very clear. You can overcome as Jesus overcame. God will sanctify you wholly. You can now to him who is able to keep you from falling. We're going to study that in our next hour. All of these verses are in scripture. It's not just Ellen White. She's just pointing you back to the greater light. And so Satan goes against the commandments of God and the spirit of prophecy because he knows that all those who stick to the word of God, the commandments of God, and the spirit of prophecy, they will stand faithful through the final crisis and they will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so with his wrath, he is enraged, and he is going after this church. And Revelation chapter 12, 17 kind of leaves us hanging. It doesn't give us the final outcome. But we're going to see the final outcome as we keep going through our study. So we're going to end there, but does that make sense? There's this warfare between Michael and Satan, and the two vehicles that are being used in the last days are, is the woman that Christ has raised up, his remnant church, which is in this day the Seventh-day Adventist church, and then there is the corrupt woman, which in this day and age is the Roman Catholic church, and those two vehicles are the vehicles being used by Christ and Satan in this final conflict that is playing itself out before our very eyes right now. Let's close with prayer, and then we'll take a short break and get into our next section. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for how you make things clear in scripture. And we're thankful that Michael, who is like God, who is God, will prevail. And I pray that we would overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. May we give our lives to the one who gave all for us. 
be with us through the rest of this day. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.